Man, it's good to see everybody made it from way away, um, right over there, and, and found their way over here. Uh, we first day in here, and we only had you know 12 to 15 kinks, and so not not so bad for a new space. So um, we're glad you guys are here. Thank you for eating too. It was neat to see. Like that was one thing we looked forward to, like eating in a space where we didn't sit. Like it was just that was good. And so thank you for bringing breakfast and eating carbs and. Um, making all of us feel better about ourselves. Um, man, we, we have a tendency to pass these little guys out. These are super, super expensive, really high quality, um, not made in America, hourglasses, because, you know, an hourglass is kind of our symbol about uh, having to do with discipleship. God pours in us, and then we flip it over and pour into someone else. And so, you know, when people go out of their way to serve our family, we like to recognize them and say thank you. And today we get to make someone feel super awkward, and he's going to have to walk all the way up from the back of the room Jason Rastatter. Um, Jason, whether you know it or not, Jason's probably was probably the longest standing musician in Origins history. He played drums uh, for like nine years. Nine years. He's he's probably played with more worship leaders, all the worship leaders almost that we had, with the exception of one, uh, all the way through. And and he's been a fixture. He's loaded every trailer. He's unloaded every closet. He's loaded every trailer and loaded every closet. And man, he just always kept perfect time. And man, we appreciate we appreciate your uh, your steadfastness and your rhythm. It's really good, and uh, it's helped us worship. It's helped us get here, and it's 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 people like you that matter, Jason. Um, no, but seriously, we appreciate you. Thank you for your years of of pitching in tirelessly, rain, sleet, snow, and all the in between. Thank you. We we've got like we've been a mobile church for a long time now, and as a result of that, it takes a lot of hands. And uh, the number of hands that it requires grows, you know, for every step that we take and every bit that we grow. And so, um, man, people like Jason and Jason specifically have helped us do that through the years. And so, Jason, we appreciate you, man. Thank you. Uh, put that somewhere where you'll see it every single day and, and be reminded that, uh, that you're loved by these people. Yeah, anyway, I like Jason to feel awkward. It's good. And Jason loves, like, two-handed hugs. Uh, like two-armed hugs, and like if you put your head right here on his chest, he loves that, especially if you're taller than he is, stoop down. It makes him feel very special, so make sure you do that today. Um, man, we're glad you're here. We are uh, still in the book of Mark today, and uh, we're, I'm excited about this passage because I probably say this too much, and if I go back and listen, I probably say this is one of my favorite passages too much, but this really is, and, and it's going to be super familiar. Like if you have any church background at all, if you went to VBS as a kid, like, that's something we don't get to do yet, but I'll be honest, like, five years ago, you'd ask me, and I'd be like, I never want to do VBS, but, like, the old man in me is craving the day when we can actually invite kids from the neighborhood to do VBS with Origins. Like, I, I want to do that. Like, I want to see the kids come out, uh, chaos and all, and, and do it. Um, but if you even went to VBS, there's a good chance that you've, you've heard this passage. And so that's a huge plus, but there's also a little caution that goes along with it. If we're super familiar with something, there's a chance for us to tune out and just go to the things that we know very well. And so the challenge today is to do our best to listen to it like uh, you're hearing it with fresh ears and a fresh heart. And um, because there's a tendency in this passage to go to one thing with our mind, and we may miss everything leading up to that. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to talk about Jesus feeding the multitude for the first time. So let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us so well. Uh, we thank you for Jesus, who did more than just come and live a perfect life, who did more than just die our death, who did more than just conquer death on our behalf, who did more uh, than, than beat sin. Um, God, he also provided a way that we can live, um, a way that we can hope, and Father, something to aspire to. 
And so, God, we thank you for all those things he did. God, today we thank you for the word uh, that came and dwelt upon, among us and also the word that we can hold in our hands and hide in our heart. And I pray we look at it well and do not add or take away anything from it. Uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 6, verse 30 is where we're going to start. We'll go through verse 44. But to kind of catch us up, uh, like we talked about, Mark has this uh, tendency to sandwich stories, intercolation, and so he'll tell a story, and instead of going right into where that story is going to continue, he'll sandwich something in between them. And so last week, we ran across that to where two weeks previous, we saw him sending out the 12 for the first time, two by two, going to teach, going to heal, going to exercise demons with his authority. And then in between that and this, which would naturally go together, we saw the death of John the Baptist. And like we talked about, difficult passage. Uh, it seems like it's just in a weird place, but there's a lot of great things that we got to see from that. And today, it kind of continues that story right after sending the 12 out two by two under his authority to go and do the things that they had seen him do, the things that he was preparing them to do. And that's where we pick up in verse 30. So it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, them, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And so this is one of the, the few miracles, which is generally where we go when we think about this, the miracle of multiplying just those few pieces of bread, those barley loaves. They almost look like pita bread and a couple fish. We generally go right to that. And it's, it's the, one of the few miracles that's actually in all four Gospels, the three synoptics and John. And so we can go and we can see some great correlations, some great additional details that Mark and Luke add, and then some theological implications that John add. But it's just, it's one of these places that most of the time, if we've been in church long enough, if we grew up even attending VBS once, there's a good chance that we heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Matthew also likes to include, Matthew the the apostle, not this Matthew, he likes to include that it was 5,000 men plus women and children. It was most likely 5,000 family units. So even if they had a small family of one child, which most likely they had more on average, we're looking at 15,000 plus. So a lot of people, lots of people, big crowd. By the word multitude, we're not using that lightly. Like it was, it was a multitude. And so a lot of people. And so basically what we have is we have Jesus and his disciples. They had just come back from ministry. Like ministry, they were sent out two by two in pairs to go to town to town to heal, to teach, to exercise demons, and do all those things that they had witnessed Jesus doing under his authority, in his name, and they went and they did it. And then they came back. They're probably excited. I'm sure that Peter's acting like our Jack Russell Terrier, just jumping up and down like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. You had to see it. You had to be there. And he's like, just calm down. Let's, let's get away. Let's go, let's go rest. Let's go debrief. That's the popular word in leadership circles today. Let's, let's go debrief. 
Let's take some notes, things like that. He's like, the plan is let's go away, get away by ourselves. And that was the idea. Um, this was uh, the Sea of Tiberias. The, you know, other gospel writers are going to say that they were going towards Bethsaida, and they were. They were just going away to get away to a desolate place, like a lonely place, a place away from people. But here's the issue. Like Jesus had been doing some pretty crazy stuff. Like he had been healing people. He had been exercising demons. He had been teaching with great authority. And then he took 12 guys and told them to do the same thing. And they went town to town to town doing the same thing. And so Jesus had become quite famous at this point. And so the disciples, they had even spread his fame. They had gone in the name of Jesus like disciples would. And so even though it was them doing these things, they were doing it in, under his authority and in his name. And so his fame had grown more and more and more. And so people heard, there's this Jesus. He's near. We see him in a boat. Uh, we're going to beat him. We're going to beat him. And, and we don't really think of the task very often. We think they're, they're in a pond, like a one-acre pond, and they're just going to sail across, and people are going the other side. No, they would have most likely had to cross the Jordan River to do this, and this was not dry season. So in order to beat Jesus there, this multitude of people, by the way, the multitude exceeded the size of the two closest towns to where they were. This was a lot of people. They had to go to great lengths to get there. One gospel writer says because they had heard about the healings that Jesus had done, the things that he had done, they wanted to go. And so the plan was let's get away by ourselves to a desolate place so that we can, we can relax, we can breathe, we can rest. You're tired. You've been doing my work in my name. Let's go do that. But people had heard about Jesus. They ran from all over the place to beat them there. And so they did. It says they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And it says, this is one of my favorite transliterated words in the New Testament. It says, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Like if you've been around me enough at all, you know that I talk about compassion because it's such an interesting word. So the seat of emotions then is different than our seat of emotions. Most of the time when we talk about feeling things, we talk about feeling things in our heart, right? We're like, I feel it deep down in my heart. Now, the heart, your ventricles, nature, they have no feeling possibility at all. But that's what we say. That's our cultural seat of our emotions. For them, their cultural seat of their emotions were their bowels, like their gut. And so they would say, man, I've got a, I got a, a rumbling. You know, I got a feeling. And so when someone says compassion, that was like this feeling deep down. It actually translates to a stirring within the bowels or a movement in the gut. It's not, it's not bad Chinese food. It's like more. It's an emotion that moves us so much that we have to do something, that we have to do something. More than a feeling, more than an emotion, more than just a, a glimmer of something in me, but it's like I feel it so strongly I have to act. And it says that Jesus went ashore, he saw the huge crowd, the multitude, 5, 10, 15 plus thousand people, and he looked on them and there was a stirring in him that said I must do something. I have to do something. I love that word because it's often attached to Jesus in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, when he would see people as they were and what they needed, it moved him to just meet needs, one after the other after the other. And in this case, he sees them, and not only does he see them have compassion on them, this is why. He says he looks on them, and it says that because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd. A lot of imagery and a lot of things going on in this particular text that lead us to look to Jesus as the good shepherd, which he would identify himself as later. But also Old Testament references, too, talking about this Messiah that would come. He would be like this shepherd that we've been waiting for. Shepherds, uh, shepherds protect, shepherds guide, and shepherds provide. Shepherds protect, shepherds guide, and shepherds provide. He looked at these people and he said, they have no provision. They have no protection. They need healing, and they need to be guided. They need truth. 
And so in this place, it says he sees them. And the first thing that he begins to do in Mark's gospel is he began to teach them. He began to guide them, give them truth. Matthew and Luke also say that he began to heal people of their infirmities, of their illnesses, of their sicknesses. So he looks at them like a shepherd, stirred deep down inside of himself to the point where he has to do something. And he just begins to meet need after need after need. One after the other after the other. All because of an unplanned interruption. Like, I think that's worth noting. Like, it's not a point, but literally, it, it's an all an unplanned interruption. Like, if we're talking about, you know, if we wanted to do a John Maxwell thing and make this a leadership idea, we would say the compassionate leader sees interruptions as opportunities. And Jesus did, of course. Like, he, he didn't say, wait, guys, we've got a plan, and you're not in it. He didn't do that. No, he looked at them, and he saw the depth of their need. He just began to meet their needs, one after the other after the other. He started with teaching, he went on to healing, and then ultimately we'll see him do something else in just a minute. And so it says he began to teach them many things. Matthew and Luke say that he began to heal them as well. And in verse 35, the disciples came to him and said, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the hour is now late. They're like, look, we are in the middle of nowhere, and it's getting dark. And what they said, I think what they said and what they meant are, are similar, but they're not the same. What they said was, you should probably send them away into the surrounding villages to get themselves something to eat. What they meant was, Jesus, we're hungry. We're tired. Could you send them away? And you say, well, how do you, how do you know? Because that's probably what I would do. And it's probably what you would do. But I'm not going to put that on you, Ricky Bobby. I'll put it on me. Like, if I was tired from serving, working, ministering, and I was with Jesus, uh, and I got there and I was hungry, I would turn into that diva that needed a Snickers, and I'd be like, hey, Jesus, maybe they should go eat somewhere because uh, they're hungry. But it would basically be me being, Jesus, I need food, I need sleep, I got bags under my eyes, my belly is rumbling, it's not compassion, it's hunger. Uh, can you send them away? And so Jesus answers, sure, sure, send them away. No, he doesn't, he doesn't. He says, uh, but he answered them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. And then they, they probably got, like, there's no inflection here that we can read in text. It's almost like seeing, getting a text message. You can't really hear how people are saying it because they, they just kind of said it like this, and it seems rather flat. It's like, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It was probably kind of a tongue-in-cheek, smart aleck kind of response because 200 denarii was probably all that they had. That's about 200 days' wages. Probably the collective of the 12 disciples put all their money together and be like, hey, Jesus, we don't have very much, and what we have is not going to be enough to feed them. You want us to go and spend that on this multitude? Because we're asking you to send them away. Because, you know, there we're hungry. Um, what, what do you want us to do? So he says, you give them something to eat. And then he asked them, he's like, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they did, and they found a boy. The other gospel writers tell us that they found a boy. He had several barley loaves and a couple fish. And, and a lot of people have gone off on a tangent, say he's probably going to feed his family. We don't know that. But either way, he had a couple. And then it continues. Like, we see that Jesus takes those and, and he blesses them, and then he hands them to the disciples, and they automatically, somehow, miraculously, beautifully feed everybody. Everybody. And not just, not just an appetizer. No, not just bacon-wrapped scallops, like eight till fulfillment. That's, that's probably the best you know, appetizer I can think of, so forgive me, I'm a, I'm a food person. But um, they all ate until they were satisfied, until they were full. And most of the time when we think about this passage, we think about that miracle. We think about, man, Jesus took five flat pieces of bread and a couple of fish, and he multiplied them miraculously, and it was amazing. Here's the reality. 
15,000 people? They didn't see that happen. They didn't see that. There, was no, there were no fireworks. There were no hot air balloons. It wasn't raining from heaven like it did in the Old Testament. It wasn't doing that. It was just, here's a basket. It's full. Pass it out. Here's another basket. It's full. Pass it out. It was like the wine at the first miracle. The pot just didn't run out. Just pass this out. What they saw was the shepherd who they had been attracted to because of the things that he had done, and they saw that he just met one need after another after another. He taught them. He healed them. He fed them. He took care of their needs. That's what they saw. And that's what was amazing. Now John tells us that some saw and they marveled at what he had done. So there probably were a few that just saw the baskets just multiplying, multiplying. By the way, there, there probably weren't that many baskets out there either. But all of a sudden, somehow, here's a basket full of food. Just pass it down. Basket full of food. Pass it down. Basket full of food. So he didn't just multiply loaves and fishes. He, he probably multiplied baskets too. There was a Hobby Lobby nowhere near there. But somehow... A lot of Hobby Lobby baskets. If you ever need a basket, that's where you go. I have a wife that's crafty. I know these things. Um, but they didn't see the miracle. They saw the provision. They just saw that this Jesus, who they were curious about because they had heard things, seen things, they wanted to talk to him, and they just saw that he took care of them. He took care of them. And I do find it interesting. You know, a couple chapters later, Jesus feeds another multitude, 4,000-plus women and children, very similar, um, but I do find it interesting at the end of this, it says, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaf were 5,000 men, additionally women and children. I do, I do kind of find it interesting. There were 12 baskets left. There were 12 disciples. They were hungry. They were starving. They had needed exactly what the multitude needed. And there, were, there was a basket for each of them at the end. But anyway, I don't know that for sure. I just think it's a pretty neat divine coincidence. And so... When we read through this, like I, I do think that there's a tendency to, to get anchored to the miracle. But I think instead of that, I think, um, number one, when, whenever we read anything about the actions of Jesus, my brain kind of transports me to 1 John, um, and it's going to go up on the screen. And we'll get down to the, the last verse here. But it says, 1 John chapter 2, 4 through 6, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, pay attention here, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I think when we read text about Jesus and the things that he's done, I think for us the first question that we need to ask is, what did he do, can I do it too? What did he do, can I do it too? I think the thing that we see first in this is the way that Jesus looked at the people. Like he looked at them, he didn't see them as an interruption, he didn't see them as a distraction, he didn't see them as a hindrance. No, he looked on them with compassion, not with disturbance, but he looked on them and he saw their needs. I think for us, the first thing we need to see in this passage is uh, Jesus looked on them with compassion and we need to see people the same way he does. We need to see people the same way he does. Uh, because, man, I think we have amazing plans in our life. Like we have detailed, detailed plans, itineraries for every single day. And if someone tries to cram their nose in between 9.30 and 10.15, we get upset because I planned my day out to the minute. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I, I live on a schedule. And if I don't, I go off schedule and stuff goes awry and I get nothing done. But maybe you're like me. And when someone just sticks in there, what do we do? How do we respond? Do we look at them like Jesus or do we look at them as an inconvenience? But Jesus, when he sees someone, whether it's on his schedule or, or off his schedule, he sees directly to their need. 
we have to learn to look at people the same way Jesus did. We have to not only learn that, but actually invite the Spirit into our lives so that he can transform us so that we can do that. Because this is, a not, this is not a natural human characteristic to look at people at their need. No, we look at them for what they can do for us or what they're costing us or what my li- how my life is going to change because of them. But instead, Jesus looks at them and he asks the opposite question. How can my life change theirs? How can my life change theirs? Because he's able to look at a person and not just see... Man, their outward appearance, not just see the inconvenience, but to see their circumstance, to see their need. We have to do that too. But the caveat is, in and of ourselves, we can't. Like in our normal, human, broken, sinful form, the way we are born, separated from God by our sin, I'll be honest, we can't do that. We can try, but not in the way that Jesus does it. And you're like, well, that's, that's pretty harsh. No, it's, it's just... Man, it's the reality of what God comes in and does, the supernatural exchange, the way that that he passively begins to regenerate us, even though we're doing our active part too, the things that he changes in us enables us to actually look at people and see their need and not just my disappointments, not just my inconveniences, not just my difficulties, not just my stuff. We get to see theirs. So we need to look on people the way Jesus does, see them and their needs before our own, see them as an opportunity, not an interruption. And then in, in, in reference to that or like that, we just need to do exactly what Jesus did and begin to meet needs as we can, when we can, how we can. And now, now granted, Jesus could do things that we probably couldn't do. Okay, like, like there's the reality. But he also says, you're going to do greater things than I did when the Spirit comes and lives inside of you. So there's also that to understand that this, this Spirit that comes and dwells in us, that gives us this dunamis, translated dynamite, dynamite, like he gives us a lot of access and a lot of power that belong to Jesus, gives it to us as a result of by grace through faith, the Spirit coming to live inside of us. But either way, there's still probably some things that he could do that we can't. But the one thing that we can do is if we see a need and we're capable, we can meet that need, whatever it may be. If we have the capability, we do it. And maybe you don't, but maybe we do. And so we ask. If we're looking at people, we're seeing their need. Don't just see their need. Actually allow it to be compassionate to stir us to do something. If we look at a need and we see it and we do nothing, we just have a feeling. We just have an emotional response. But we need more than that. Jesus looks on them. There's a stirring deep within him that declares, demands that he does something. We have to look the way Jesus looks at people and begin to meet their needs. And so... The neat thing about this is the other thing that we miss if we go right to the miracle is we often miss, too, that there were actually two crowds in this multitude. There were two crowds in this multitude. Say, what do you mean, Joe? My name's not Joe, but this is what I mean. Um, There there were the the 15,000 men, women, and children, but then there were the 12. Two different crowds. Two different crowds. And Jesus was not only a compassionate leader, but he was a compassionate multitasker. And so Jesus was able to see the need of both. Now the multitude, the 5, 10, 15,000, they needed to be taught, they needed to be protected or healed, they needed to be provided for, they needed to be fed, but these 12, they needed to learn. They needed to to get an idea as to what it meant to, to be like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to have compassion like Jesus. And when they said, send them away to the surrounding countryside so that they can eat because they and we are hungry, He said, you feed them. You feed them. Now imagine your most starved self, your most exhausted self. You've been working until you're just worn, slam out. You're hungry. 
you, you are in that full diva state. Maybe that's not you. Maybe I've got an addiction to food that I need to confess and deal with. But either way, you're there, and then someone says, you're not done. You need to do more. What do you do? What do you do? I think Jesus knew what the disciples needed is they needed to be in this moment. They needed to be discipled. For, for several reasons. Number one, they needed to understand that their work, their serving, their job, their role, their calling, it wasn't over yet. There was still more to be done. There was still more to be done. And they also needed to be reminded that serving takes on many forms. Because they had just gone, they had just preached, they had just taught, they had just healed, they had done all these things in the name of Jesus, they had done miraculous works. And maybe they thought they were beyond sweeping, maybe they thought they were beyond bussing tables, maybe they thought they were beyond waiting tables, maybe they just for one moment thought that they had been elevated to a place other than servant, and maybe Jesus thought maybe they need to be reminded that number one, the work's not done, and number one, this work's not beneath you. Like I think we... Man, for us, maybe, maybe for me, let me be reminded. Maybe for me, I statements. Maybe Jesus needs to remind me that I'm not above sweeping floors. Not above setting up chairs. Maybe I need to be reminded. Maybe you do too. I don't know, but maybe I do. Maybe I need to be reminded that it doesn't matter if I'm tired, if I'm hungry, if there's need, I'm still called to meet that need. However I can, whenever I can, until I can't. Maybe I need to be reminded that if we are truly yoked to Jesus, there's no such thing as burnout. And you say, well, that's pretty harsh because there is burnout. I think there's burnout when our priorities are askew. But Jesus says, I've come to give you life, life more abundantly, not with a cautionary tale. None of that. No, no, no. I think if our priorities are off, yes, burnout will occur. But I see Jesus reminding us, you're not above sweeping. You're not above serving. It's not over until it's done. And I've got you. You're tired. You're hungry. I get it. It's okay. It's okay. Because again, he's going back to teaching them the same thing that we talked about first. We have to look at people the way Jesus does. We have to look at people the way Jesus does, seeing their need beyond my need. I think we've, yeah, we have. Like, I won't say think. What we have done with Christianity is we've made it incredibly convenient. We've made it incredibly convenient. We've made it incredibly appealing. We've made it look very, very easy. But here's the reality. Jesus uses words that don't sound like that. He says, if you would come after me, uh, you're going to have to carry a cross. He said that before they saw him do it. So I'm sure when they saw him do it, they're like, oh, that's what you meant? I don't know if I want that. But he meant it. He said, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. They were like, what do you mean? Sure you do. But if we see what's at stake, if we see where the need actually extends to, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to miss some sleep, to miss a meal, to miss some comfort, to miss a meeting, to miss an appointment that seemed really important with a bagel. <laughs> it's an important meeting. Unless you're keto, it's not important. But if we see people's need, and we know that Jesus is the only solution, and we know that his plan A for reaching them with himself as us changes everything. Then the long days don't seem that bad. Sleepless nights maybe don't seem that bad. It's not nearly as neat as we've made it. 
It's not nearly as comfortable as we've made it. It's not nearly as, imp- as, as easy as we've made it. But it is beautiful that Jesus says, I've, I've got you. There'll be a basket waiting for you at the end. Now, it may be scraps. It may be scraps, but it's still there. The Great Commission, I love the way that it, it wraps up in Matthew 28 before it kind of continues in the book of Acts of like, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and don't worry because I'll be with you through it all. Like, I love that he puts that on the very end because it sounds undoable. It's, it sounds like this is more than I can possibly achieve, but he's like, but don't worry. I've been there already, and I'll go with you too. I think the other thing that the disciples needed to learn, maybe I need to learn, maybe you need to learn, is that in the scope of what he's called us to do, he will provide, we distribute. He will provide, we distribute. Because if we look at the picture of what he did here, like it wasn't the disciples that were looking at the basket and it was just, you know, exploding with fish and bread. No, he's like, here's a basket, take it. Here's a basket, take it. Here's a basket, take it. He provided. All they had to do was pass it out. I think a large majority of the time, what it looks like for us to serve our neighbors, to serve our coworkers, to serve our family, to serve our friends, is very often God has already provided, whether it's in your story. He's already provided that story. All you have to do is hand it out. Speak it. He's already provided the gospel, the way to him. All we have to do is hand it out. He's already provided the means. Like if we look at the things that God has done through this faith family in the past two years when people were struggling to figure out where money was going to come from and to realize that as a church we got to give away more money than we've ever given away and still save for the rainy day when we get to have a space that we can invest in. When, when like giving went through crazy, crazy record high numbers when I know that people were struggling. I don't understand. I don't know where it came from, but I know that God God has a purpose, and I know that he has a plan for it, and I know that he's saying, look, all you have to do is hand it out, and I'll give it to you. That's all. Again, we've made it incredibly easy. I mean, we've made it incredibly palatable. We've done all those things, but at the same time, we've overcomplicated it to the point to where we forget that Jesus says, I'll give it to you. All you got to do is keep an open hand and give it away, whether it's your story whether it's your talents, whether it's your gifts, whether it's your money, whether it's your time, whether it's your passions, whether it's any of those things, even if it's your crayons, I don't care. Jesus says, I give it to you so that you can give it away. We see it in Acts chapter 2, glad and generous at the same time. They were glad, thank you God for giving it to me, but who needs it? Same idea. Jesus provides, he just passed the baskets out. Now sometimes that means that there will be an interruption. Sometimes that means there will be an inconvenience. Sometimes that means that we're giving away something that we intended for ourselves. It's okay. It's okay. I can look out and tell that none of us are starving right now. I don't see anybody's ribs. Whatever you have, it's not so important that it it can't be given away. Now, my kids, I'm not giving my kids away. My wife, but that's different. I don't own those. I'm just stewarding them right now. What is it? What is it? I love this story so much because Jesus took the time to do everything for everybody in the entire crowd. The 15,012. I know that's probably not exact, but you get what I mean. 
he was compassionate enough that not only did he display it and see the need that the multitude had, but he also looked at his disciples, the one that had been walking with him for one plus years, some of them up to two. And he said, I know what you need right now too. So maybe, maybe what you need to hear today is that Jesus looks on you with compassion. Maybe you haven't heard, maybe you've never heard, and there's a good chance, maybe you've never heard that, man, Jesus loves you and he knows exactly what you need. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to hear it again, that Jesus loves you and he knows exactly what you need. And it's not just a meal. It's not just a Band-Aid. He knows that you need him. And he wants you to hear it. He knows exactly what you need. And he'll provide it. He'll give it to you. But then, he expects you to give it away, too. Maybe the rest of us need to hear that, that what has been entrusted to us, just like that hourglass that we talk about so frequently, what has been entrusted to us, he thoroughly and completely expects us to give that away. Not to let loose of my salvation or my relationship with him, but the story that he has created in me, he fully expects us to pass that on through relationship, through knowing others, through speaking of what God has done in, in like English from Greek, to be my witnesses. Talk about what you've seen. Talk about what you've heard. Talk about what I've done. He completely expects us to give what we needed that he gave to us away. To give it away. Maybe you need to hear that following Jesus isn't always easy. And in the past, maybe that's why you walked away from the church. Like, I know our demographic. I understand that most of us are not from Greenville, number one. I also understand that, that probably well over half of you uh, had some experience in the church and you walked away at a young age. Maybe it was because you thought that this was too hard. It is. Following Jesus is difficult. Some days it's cake. There are other days that there is no cake. But it's okay. And it's also okay to tell our brothers and sisters, man, today's a hard day. It's all right. Tough week for my family. Tough week. Lost my sainted grandmother. Not because she performed three miracles, but because she literally embodied what it meant to be a saint. And it's okay for me to say, this week sucked. It did. I didn't want to get out of bed yesterday. There's freedom to say that following Jesus sometimes is very hard. But it's also very good. Because not only do I know that losing her stunk, but I know in the most reverent way she is shaking her booty for Jesus right now. Because she loved. She loved to do the twist. And her hips went out about five, seven years ago. And she couldn't do it anymore. And I know she's got hand raised and she's shaking. This week stunk. But it was also a time to celebrate. It's okay and there's freedom to say that some days following Jesus is just hard it's just hard but it's also okay to say I know I can get through it because I know he's with me and I know we're in this together I think we're so afraid to speak like what we really feel sometimes that we've done a great disservice to what the gospel really looks like when it inhabits us but it's okay it is okay 
Maybe today we just need to be reminded that we can be honest. We can be honest. I don't know where you are with Jesus right now. I don't know what you've given up. I don't know what you've held on to so close-fisted that you're afraid. Um, But I can tell you that whatever he asks for you to give away, he's going to take care of you. I can say that with, with no reservations at all. He will take care of you. If you feel like it's your freedoms, you're okay. If you feel like it's your finances, you're okay. If you feel like it's your schedule, you're okay. Comfort, you're okay. I know that without a doubt. We've watched it. We've seen it. We've experienced it. There are countless stories of our contemporaries around us that have done the same thing. And, and man, maybe we just need to be honest and share it. Say, look, I think in community groups last week, we had this question come up, is following Jesus cost us anything? We were talking about John the Baptist, like it cost him his life. But we tried to bring it down to like a a macro level and say, but what does it cost you? You're still alive, so it hasn't cost you that. But what does it cost you? I think it's okay that, man, we just tell each other, hey, this is what I've given up to follow Jesus. And at the time, it seemed really rough. But in retrospect, it's been good. Feel free to share. Not right now, later want to now that's fine too but feel free to do that Um, I know it's a weird place to end it's a strange place to wrap up but God has us we see proof of that in Jesus we see proof of that in the legacy that's left by people like my grandmother we see proof of it all around us there's nothing so big that we can't give up that God doesn't have completely under control Nothing. Nothing. Let's pray and we'll wrap up today. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the way that uh, even in this super familiar story, you remind us that you want to take care of every need that we have, every real genuine need, starting at the, starting at the immediate and going to the eternal. God, for the the one or two or or more that's sitting here that just needed to hear that you actually see their need and you care about it and you want to meet it, God, I pray that you would speak loudly to them today. I pray that they would uh, confess that to someone else that said, "I, I haven't thought about that in a long time or I've never thought about that or I've never heard it. And God, provide an opportunity for more truth to be shared and for you to work in that. God, for those of us that maybe never thought that it's okay to say that sometimes following you is hard. I think we just need to have that freedom to say, look, this has been hard, but it's been good to admit it, to confess it. And God, to be able to rejoice in the fact that as hard as it was, you were still there. You didn't leave us. You did not forsake us. You were in the midst of it. God, I thank you for what you're building. I thank you for what you're growing. I thank you for the the fact that you're growing it through people. And you're growing it through stories. Um, you're growing it through things that we can't explain. I thank you for that. And God, I, I pray that we celebrate it well and that we're just good stewards of all the grace you're pouring out on us. Uh, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray.